Hi, this is J.P. Maroney. What you're about to hear is an interview I did many, many years ago with a business consultant by the name of Stephanie Smith. At the time, I was speaking on the circuit doing keynote addresses for business owners and managers talking about how to get your employees to think and act like owners in the workplace and take personal responsibility for the company's success, treat the company as if it is their own. And I did a presentation called Business Builders, Business Busters, and I used to say, build your people and let your people build your business. And so this interview is a lot about leadership. It's about leading your people by example, leading your people by inspiration and all the things that motivate people to follow you and to achieve success. And it talks about the fact that a manager is measured or a leader is measured by the results that they produce through other people. So if you're an owner or a business manager and you are trying to lead a group of people to help you build your business, I think you'll get a lot out of this interview. Enjoy. This is the J.P. Maroney Audio Vault. Today I'm going to interview J.P. Maroney. J.P. is the founder and CEO of Maricom Group. He teaches managers to leverage their organization's human capital through corporate events, workshops, professional training programs, books, and consulting. Since selling his five-magazine publishing company in 1999, J.P. has worked with and spoken with organizations including major corporations like Wells Fargo, national associations such as the National Apartment Association, franchise companies like Precision Auto Parts, and professional organizations such as the Texas Association of Business. His passion and expertise lies in creating a corporate culture where employees think and act like owners and accept personal responsibility for the organization's success. Today I've asked JP to talk with me a bit about how managers can develop themselves and their teams in context of advancing their own careers. JP, I'd like to start by just asking directly, how does improving the skills of a manager's staff, how does building their teams advance a manager's career? Well, I have an underlying philosophy, and that is that all effective managers, all effective leaders, all effective people who have others following them, and that's the true mark of a leader, that their success is ultimately determined by whether or not they produce results through other people. I have managers that are in conferences where I speak, and I'll stand up and tell them point blank that if you're not producing results through other people, you're not a manager, you're not a leader. So if you want to move up in an organization, if you want to become a leader at a higher level, ultimately you have to adapt the skills, the mindset, the necessary uh, you know, principles in your life. You have to be able to produce some kind of result through other people, and preferably it's high performance. Well, what do you think a manager can do to improve his or her own skills and what do you think might just be innate? Can a manager become more adept at raising the performance of his team? Yeah, let's be honest, okay? There are two schools of thought on this in terms of what is learned and what is uh, internal. And that's a, a conversation for a whole different day. But, you know, there are two schools of thought that we're born with certain natural abilities. 
and then there are things that are learned. But you find people all the time who really stink at managing people, but who learn the skills and do an exceptional job. I'll also say this, and I'll come back to your question, but I'll say this, that you can look at organizations, uh, let's say a company that has branch offices all around the United States, all around the world. You can look at them and, and look at the higher performing units, and you can directly track the success of that unit back to that manager's ability to manage and lead people. So if a manager is going to our person, let's take a person that's in, maybe they're a team leader right now. Maybe, you know, maybe they only have uh, one or two people answering to them or three people answering to them, and their mission or their purpose or their goal is to move up in the organization. There are certain things that they can do to enhance their skills as a leader. One of them is to assume the role. You know, leadership is not about titles. Leadership is about responsibility and accountability. And so, and it's about mentoring other people. So in terms of learning the skills, I have, have told people, and you know, you and I have talked about books and the, the value of books, but I say this from the stage, that you can literally go to the library and for free check out a book, take it home, and over the weekend learn what it took someone else 20 years to learn. Learn from their mistakes. I mean, they already screwed up, so learn from their mistakes. And I, over the years, I have consumed, and people are always blown away when they come in my office and look at my library, and and they, you know, they're they're like, you read all these books, and I said, no, I haven't read all these books. I've consumed these books. I've read them multiple times. I've marked them up. I've taken notes. I've taught this stuff. And so if a manager is going to enhance their skills, they have to get some knowledge from somewhere. People talk about that knowledge is power. Well, that's a crock. Knowledge is not power because how many people do we know who have gone to, you know, you probably went to school with some of these people. They've gone to Ivy League schools. They've gone to all the seminars. They've gone to all the courses. They, their company has paid for them to go to all of these training systems and, and immerse themselves in all this stuff, and yet they never get off the launching pad. And then you have another person who's had none of those advantages and yet they streak like a meteor across the sky and accomplish great things so knowledge has very little to do with performance the the real key is to do something with that information I have a phrase I, I speak about from the stage it's a quote I think it's one of the most powerful things I've ever said it says that the acquisition of knowledge and the application of knowledge will make you a very powerful person for the rest of your life. But that's the key. You've got to do something with what you learn. So I talk to managers and I say, if you're going to become an exceptional leader, if you're going to become an exceptional manager, you have to get more knowledge. That is a fact. You do not know everything you need to know to succeed. I don't know everything I need to know, which is why I continue to consume more information. But then you have to do something with it. And so, you know, successful people write two things. They write what kind of person they're going to be and they write what kind of things they're going to do. So you've got to get up every single day and think about what you're going to do differently than you did the day before, applying that information that you're learning. And, you know, there are all sorts of tricks for getting yourself to actually do that, and we can talk about that, too, if you want. Well, let me go a step back, because so far you've told me managers have to assume the role of leader, they have to acquire knowledge, they have to do something with that knowledge, and they have to write down how they're going to do it. So what I'd like to do is ask you a question. If you were speaking to a group of managers, or just one, right now, where would you tell him or her to start? There are a lot of books out there. There's a flood of books out there. Where can they start, and what should they do 
with that book starting tomorrow morning? I don't know that it's that simple, to be honest with you, Stephanie. I, I don't know that it's that formulaic because different people come at this at different levels. Meaning, some people come at this. At, I mean, I can recommend some books, and I'd be happy to do that. But really, you have to sit down and assess where you are in your own skill set. There are, uh, you know, there's no shortage of management training books, and, and we can talk about them. But really, it's all about the individual. And, uh, you know, if you look at, at common thinking, it is that we're going to. You hear about people getting sent to training programs or being given some sort of material to help improve their weaknesses. Well, that's a crop. You can't necessarily improve somebody's weaknesses. You can uh, shore up their skills, but if they really stink at a particular area of life, you're better off. And I, I write about this. I speak about this. You're better off finding out what they're except, exceptional at and then managing around their weaknesses. So leveraging their strengths is, is really the bigger thing. So what I suggest people do, and there are a lot of assessment tools that people can go through. There's a P3. There's, uh, you know, there's all sorts of disc profiles and stuff. But to go through and find out what are you good at, what are your your competencies, what are your natural abilities, are, and again that goes back to different philosophies of whether it's natural or learned. But at this state in your life, where where what have you developed into, and what are you really not good at? And then discover how best you can apply those skills and what sort of additional information you would need to apply those skills. So and my point is, is some people are really, truly great and truly fantastic at managing projects and timelines and, and all of those sorts of things. Other people are truly great at being visionary and getting things started and uh, seeing things differently. Those are different roles of leadership and management. So you can't, I don't think, put a uh, necessarily a, a formula on every manager should read these three books. Having said that, I will say that one of the best books I ever read on management or for managers is called First Break All the Rules by Buckingham and Kaufman. These two guys were... Um, they, they still work for, I think, Gallup organization. A lot of people know Gallup by their polls, but Gallup does tons and tons of behind-the-scenes research that people never know about, and they sell that information. Well, this particular book was based on interviews with, I believe, 80,000 managers and over a million employees. The, the sum total of the book is this, that uh, the ultimately the success of an organization comes back to frontline management, which ties in very closely with the things your your philosophies you're writing about and believe on believe in, and that the um, the manager, if they're going to succeed, um, doesn't necessarily do things in the conventional way. Give an example. You know, people talk about treating people fairly and equally. Well, exceptional managers don't do that. Exceptional managers treat each person in their organization as an individual. And so they they have to adapt their management style, their mentorship, coaching abilities to each person. They have to adapt motivation. I speak on five factors that, that drive performance, which are really five motivational factors. It's one of the seminars I give. And in that particular seminar, we talk about that different people respond to different uh, 
motivational factors. Some people are motivated by money, but there are a lot of people who'll do things for mo- for recognition that they'll never do for money. So if you just focus on giving them more money, more money, more money, you're actually making a mistake. So exceptional managers adapt to the different uh, drivers and to the different styles of the people in their group. But that book is an exceptional book for managers, and it would be a good starting point for any manager. I recommend it from the stage, so uh, that's a good one. a question, JP, about what you just said about adapting motivational techniques. Mm -hmm. How do you find out what motivates each individual? Well, I I have a belief that any behavior rewarded will be repeated. Uh, Ken Blanchard talks about walking around catching people doing the right things as opposed to the wrong things. So, um, you know, you learn it over time. Part of it can come in the interview process. I'm a big believer in taking the interview process deeper than just what they've done skill-wise. And so we talk about, when I, I recommend some of the questions, that go much deeper than just, you know, what did you do at your last job? You can find out different people. For example, I'm going to give you one example, and this goes back to one of my five factors that motivate people, which is recognition. You could interview someone, and you could discover by asking the right questions if they were maybe on a committee at the Chamber of Commerce in their local market and that they were involved in this big membership drive and that they recruited more new members than anyone else that was involved in the drive and that they were uh, given an opportunity to stand on stage and get this plaque and that they got their picture in the you know, Chamber of Commerce newsletter and they got all this recognition. And by talking to them and asking them, well, how did that make you feel? And by watching their body language, and watching them light up and get excited, you could discover very quickly that, you know what, this person gets really hot and excited about recognition. Well, I, I would make a note of that in their file. I'd make a mental note of that as a leader or manager. And so, again, what people have responded to in the past, there's a likelihood that they'll respond to it in the future. You can ask a question of someone, have you ever stayed on a job and passed up a, an opportunity to go to work somewhere else for more money because you truly were excited about and enthusiastic about the work that you're doing at your current job or the work that you were doing at your current job when you passed up on that opportunity. And people will tell you, yes, absolutely, of course I did. Well, that lets you know that that person values job satisfaction more than, and for some reason, and by digging with the right questions, you could find out why did they stay. Um, but, you know, you'll find out that that person's motivated more by satisfaction than they are by money. So it really goes back to getting to know your people. Uh, in that book, Buckingham and Kaufman wrote, they have what they call the Q12. And one of those questions on the Q12 is, uh, it says something like, uh, and these were questions that they used to interview employees and kind of get the temperature gauge on their job satisfaction. And one of the questions was, have I talked to someone, I think in the last six months, about my performance and about you know what I'm doing here on the job? Well, if you're not talking to your people, there's absolutely no way you can know what they're thinking. You can't know what the motivates them. There's, there's really very little you can do. And so this whole idea of management happening from an office somewhere is, is really a myth. 
management happens between two people, in other words. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I, I talk about and view management as uh, the role of a mentor or a coach. Um, you know, there are actually a lot of football coaches, as an example, and that may be a bad example for some people who would listen to this. Maybe they're not into football, but as a as a broad example, there are a lot of people who coach that maybe were mediocre football players. Okay, maybe they were great football players, but some of them were mediocre football players at, at best, and yet they turn out to be exceptional coaches. Well, can you give me an example of some of those coaches and what you think they brought to the game? I probably can't. I'm a bad person to uh, try to name names in football. I know very few of them. I, I like to watch the game. But but in general, my point is is that they you don't necessarily have to be exceptional at the game. You don't have to be, you know, 7 foot 3 to be able to coach a really exceptional star basketball player. Okay, you just have to know how to find their strengths, find their weaknesses, find out what they're they're capable of doing, and bring out the best in them. And sometimes that that takes getting close to them, discovering what motivates them, discovering uh, what drives them to excel and practice, and all of these different things. Well, in the, in the workplace, it's much the same. A manager that's going to uh, you know truly succeed and really produce results through other people, which, as we said, is the that's the measuring stick. If they're going to do that, they've got to get close enough to their people to understand what how their mind works. JP, can you go through with me the five factors of motivation and an actual method or technique a manager can use related to each of those factors? I can. That's an entire seminar by itself, but I'm going to give you the, the quick version. I'm there. looking for um, the answer specifically tied to how a manager can advance himself or herself through motivating um, others. So if you could, I'd, I'm not asking you to do the entire seminar. Yeah, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do the five, and I'm going to give you some examples, because this is, one, by the way, this is one of my favorite topics, okay? So you're not, you're not stretching me at all. But let me let me give you the stretches to try to condense it. So let me condense it for you. There's five factors: satisfaction, recognition, appreciation, inspiration, and compensation. Um, and, and let me give you the example. Um, satisfaction is the feeling a person gets internally by doing a good job. Recogn uh, appreciation, and I think I got them out of order, but appreciation, number two, is the feeling someone gets by a manager letting them know that they've done a good job, or it could even be a peer, and then we talk about that. Recognition is the feeling a person gets by being publicly shown that their um, their actions are appreciated through some method. They get a tro trophy, they get their picture on the wall, whatever. They get a ribbon, they get a plaque, whatever. Inspiration is the feeling a person gets from someone in the organization, and that's typically a leader. A manager, it could be a, a manager, and we'll talk about that specifically, but someone in a leadership role inspiring that person. And you've seen this people stay involved and they engage in a particular company and they're excited about being there and excited about working there for one major reason they absolutely love that leader. Okay, you've seen that? Yes, I have. 
and the final is compensation and you know I, I tell people that we're all motivated by money to some degree or another people tell me well no I'm not money motivated well yes you are because you have to pay your bills so at some level you are motivated by money now that does not mean that it's the number one factor in fact I survey my audiences from time to time just have people raise their hands for different reasons and I find that money is in many cases the least important of the factors now partially and if you look at the Q12 that Buckingham and Kaufman developed compensation is not even mentioned in those questions for measuring employee satisfaction because there is an assumption that we that people will be paid appropriately for their time so compensation is important but as I mentioned before a lot of people will pass up other opportunities to go to work somewhere else because they love what they do, they're happy with what they do, they're inspired by the leader that they're following. There are a lot of different factors that are more important. Now I'm going to go back through the five one more time and give you some quick examples of what a manager can do. Satisfaction is really about the workplace environment. It's about it really is sort of covered by job satisfaction can be affected by the other four factors but it's about satisfaction is about a person feeling good about what they do and that starts with two things doing what you love and doing what you're good at so we talk about people being positioned in the right roles in organization being put in a place where the environment is conducive to their success so as a manager your role is to find out a what do people love to do what are they good at where have they excelled and let them do more of that Dell has and this is another great book uh, Michael Dell's book direct from Dell um, he, he makes a statement in there about some of Dell's management uh, tactics that they've used over the years and they, they do one thing they call job segmentation it is actually a rite of passage or a a reward to lose part of your responsibility at Dell. They, as they grew, what they did, and I assume they still do this, but as they grew, they would, let's say that I'm doing five things, and let's say that I'm truly exceptional at three of them. Well, as the company grew and, and we got busier and my job became more complex and involved, they would actually take away those two things that I wasn't really a star at and give them to someone new or someone that was advancing in the organization and it would give me more time to focus on the things I was truly exceptional at so as a manager and I think that's a, an amazing strategy by the way for people management but as a manager my role is to recognize where do people excel what are they good at how can I allow them to do more of that in the company so that their satisfactions will be extremely high this goes much deeper than just employee retention this has to do with ultimately the levels of customer satisfaction in fact I say all the time that there's a direct correlation between employee satisfaction and customer satisfaction if you have unhappy people working in the organization guess what you're gonna have unhappy customers it, it, you can't disconnect the two and so uh, you know it's very important to have high levels of satisfaction and that means helping people find what they're good at find the roles that they can excel at I mean think about this have you ever seen someone who was doing 
I mean, an incredible job in the workplace. And then through a uh, what they call an advancement or a transfer or whatever, they ended up in a different role in the company and their performance plummeted. Absolutely. Okay. Now, you, as a manager, you have to look at that and say, well, what was it? You know, they, you look up one day. Now, there can be external forces, like they may be going through a divorce or something that's beyond the control of the manager. But you have to look at that and say, what happened? Are they, did they get placed in a role that they're not really good at, that they don't really love? That You have to stop and assess that. I spoke to a manager here a while back. I was interviewing for a book I was writing, and he said, we actually, when we promote people, we actually give them a way out, a door out. We say, look, let's call this a six-month trial period, not like you're on trial, but that the job is on trial. Because if you get in this role and you decide that you hate it, I would rather you go back to doing what you're doing or go and do something else in the company than leave us. So that's a great strategy for making sure you don't lose people by them getting what should be a promotion actually turns out to be a nightmare for their career. Right, absolutely. I would also um, argue or ask you, um, don't you think that satisfaction among employees is also directly tied to profits for the company? It could be, but not necessarily. Oh, you mean it, are the profits of the company tied to whether or not those people are satisfied? Correct. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But see, that goes back to, um, you know, well, it could go back to customer satisfaction and sales, but it could also go back to if people are satisfied, they're going to take more pride in what's going on in the workplace, which means conserving uh, resources, uh, you know, caring about whether or not money is being wasted, et cetera. So absolutely. I, I, I give you an example. We had a, and we may, this may be answering another question down in the future, so we, I'll give a brief an, uh, example here, and then we can come back and talk about it if it applies later. But we had an organization where that was going through our people builder system, and we asked them four questions at the end of each uh, module. And one of those questions, the final question is, what ideas do you have for improving our organization? And then we prompt them, improving customer satisfaction, reducing waste, improving teamwork, communication, etc. So the employees now are fully engaged with our people builder system. Their mind is working. They're thinking, which sometimes may, in some workplaces, they've never been asked to think before, just do. And then we're asking them these questions. So... Uh, we had a, uh, a lineman working for a power company that said, why don't we take this gadget? And I won't go into the whole story, but why don't we take this gadget that we normally discard? Let's um, buy the equipment that it takes to refurbish it and give it to a Goodwill Industries, people that work with um, individuals that have you know, mental disabilities. Why don't we give them the equipment? Why don't we train them on how to refurbish this equipment? Why don't we give them all of these pieces, these gadgets that we're taking out and then buy them back at a discount. And it saved the company multi-millions in um, annual savings in the company. And he said, uh, his manager went to him finally and said, how long have you known this? And he said, since I climbed a pole 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And he said, why didn't you ever share it? And he said, well, no one ever asked. 
And so, you know, it, when you're talking about job satisfaction, you're talking about an opportunity for people to contribute. Um, once they get fully engaged, and that's one of my things I call, you know, emotional equity, where people buy into the company emotionally, internally, they feel like they, they're an owner. Uh, when you get those kinds of satisfaction levels, yeah, it, you'll see it all across the organization. So just to sum up on satisfaction, what managers can do is really hone in on where people excel, enable them to do more of that, give them an opportunity to contribute, and if they do those three things, it will lead to, among other benefits, increased customer satisfaction, increased employee satisfaction, and in the case of the linemen, increased profitability for the company. Certainly, yeah. It's, it, you know, it's a much bigger picture than that, but yes. It's, well, let's go on to um, appreciation now. Appreciation is the manager's role. It also can happen throughout the organization. We teach it that managers should teach their employees how to do it among themselves. In other words, peer-to-peer. But it starts with the manager or the leader. And appreciation really goes back to finding people doing good things, doing the right things, and then expressing how you feel about that. And that means you've got to get out of your cubicle or get out of your office, and you've got to go out and look at what your people are doing and then respond to that. Appreciation can be as simple as stopping by someone's desk and sharing with them that you know, you're thankful and grateful for how they handled something. It can be a little handwritten note. It can be sending them a gift. It can be um, you know, sending them a card. It can be uh, jotting them an email or an instant message. It can be a post-it note stuck to their computer monitor. But just showing them that you appreciate it. Once again, you know, any action rewarded will be repeated. And so if you catch people doing the right things and respond to that, guess what? They're going to want to do more of it. And, you know, there are a lot of different ways you can show appreciation to people, but there are some fundamental principles that underlie that, and I won't get into all of them, but, but one of them is being authentic. In other words, you have to truly believe and feel what you're saying. If you go to someone and, and you're synthetic and you're, you're just basically pandering to them, they're going to know real fast. They, people know whether you're authentic or synthetic. So being authentic in your appreciation and your gesture to them is important. Another is, is doing it repeatedly and over. In other words, being consistent about it. Another is actually being um, uh, spontaneous. And what I call planned spontaneity sometimes. I'll give an example. I told you, uh, you know, there are some tricks to actually doing this stuff. Once you learn this stuff, then there are tr- tricks to doing this stuff. I had a CEO of one of my clients. The uh, It's a major credit union chain. And they have multiple branches, and and they cover a fairly good piece of geography. And I was speaking at their meeting, and I was talking about this stuff. And right in the middle of the meeting, he, the CEO of the company raised his hand. And I recognized him, and he, he said, I'd like to share something that our managers may not know about me. He said, I started as a teller and came up through the ranks and grew in this company over the years. And he said, one of the things I discovered early on was that appreciation was one of the biggest factors 
that I could bring about and bring to the table that would continually motivate and inspire people, excite them, make them feel more a part of what they what we were doing. He said, but I also found that I got busy and forgot to do it sometimes. So he said, I actually wrote in my calendar every day on my planner and ultimately when he went to a digital system he made it a reoccurring thing that happened every day he said I actually put it in my system to show someone appreciation today and it was just a trick it's kinda like putting a box in front of the door before you go to bed the night before so you won't forget to take it out with you the next day it it was just a trick to remind himself and sometimes we have to do that as managers we get busy with the the minutiae I mean we get so tied up in the stuff that we have to go through to run the organization or to to get down and get the reports and the charts ready for our meeting this week and all those kind of things that we actually do forget to look up and you know look around and find out what are people doing and how can I show some appreciation so that's the next thing is you know appreciation is going to them and showing them that in some way written verbal whatever showing them that you truly appreciate what they're doing JP, do you believe in um, kind of formalized appreciation uh, gestures like taking the team out to lunch or um, taking people out to a ball game or something along those lines? Yeah, and you know what's interesting is, and that kind of goes back to what Buckingham and Kaufman talked about in their book, is that it's different for for every manager. You have to find your style. You know, some managers get very involved, and and I have my own personal opinions about this because I'm an entrepreneur and been running companies for years. But you know, every manager has their own style about how involved they get with their people, especially outside the the office setting. You know, some managers go and have a beer with their people periodically or whatever it, that really is up to that manager and they have to handle that that differently um, but yeah I mean it involves a lot of different things it could be having uh, you know when when employees hit a certain level or if they achieve a certain goal it could be as simple as having you know cake at lunch one day it's it sounds silly but I remember reading a story I don't remember the team but I re- remember reading a story about this football team and the coach was talking about how when they won a game they had cake on Monday morning at practice after the weekend's game or Tuesday morning whenever it was they went back to practice they would have cake and ice cream and it's kind of a silly thing he said but you watch these big 280 to 350 pound guys moping around after a a loss and when they didn't get their cake and ice cream and he said it was kind of a silly thing but it it was symbolic of something um, that you know it was a celebration so yeah it's I'm okay with those things, but again, you have to adapt that to your own style. And I'd hate to put that in as a formulaic thing that, well, all managers should do this. Well, JP, let me just see if I sum up the appreciation factor uh, correctly. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you're saying that um, you need to do something tangible to appreciate good behavior, good results. And in doing so, you want to be authentic, be consistent be spontaneous, even if it's planned spontaneity, and be true to your own comfort zone and style. And I want to add one more piece to that, and that is be specific. In other words, when you go to someone, you do, let me let you compare the two, juxtapose these against each other. You go to someone and you say, Mary, I really appreciate you around here. You do a great job, and, and we're so glad to have you. Well, that's nice. You know, that Mary might feel a little bit better. But if the manager goes to Mary and says, Mary, 
I saw what you did on the Franklin account yesterday, how you saved the day, how you pulled that out of the, the bag and just that whole deal was about to tank and I saw the way you got on the phone and managed that situation and it could have spun out of control and, and I stood back in amazement and watched how you saved that account. It's things like that that make this company a success, Mary, and I just want you to know that we truly appreciate the extra effort that you go to to make those things happen. Now, w compare the two. Right, and even the second version didn't cost the company any money and took less than two minutes out of the manager's time. Exactly, but it's specific. Mm -hmm. And my point is is that people, if you give specifics, they know you're really watching. They know you're not paying lip service. So that's the key. Excellent. All right, let's go on to the next factor, which is recognition. Recognition is powerful. And, you know, I mentioned early on that uh, many times people will do for recognition what they don't, won't do for money. Recognition is things like, you know, getting a plaque on, on the wall, getting your picture on, in the newsletter, getting a little article written about you. Um, it can be many, many different things. But it, in essence, it's a public Excuse me, it's a public show of appreciation is really what it amounts to. It's usually more tangible, meaning there's some sort of physical device attached to it. It could be a T-shirt or a coffee mug. I remember my mentor, who was ultimately a partner of mine. Let me pause for just a second. We'll cut that out, okay? You want me to go back? No, let me um, get my my mental thought recognition. T-shirt, uh, coffee mug. Yeah. Okay. Let me give you an example. My mentor, I remember him talking about having a, a staff member come to him, and she was all down in the dumps and, you know, sort of like the kid kicking their toe in the dirt and, you know, all downcast one day. And, and he went to her finally and said, you know, what's, what's going on? What, what's wrong? And she looked at him. She said, well, how long do I have to work here to get uh, a T-shirt, uh, one of these it wasn't a t-shirt, it was a golf shirt, actually. Get a, a shirt, a company shirt. And he said, and of course he was an exceptional leader and, and manager of people, and, and he recognized what was going on immediately. And he said, well, let me ask you a question. How long have you been working here now? And she told him how long. He said, well, you know what? You just qualified to get a shirt. And he kind of grinned, and you just have to know his personality. And of course, she she lit up. She grinned, and and she realized how silly. But you know, it had been eating at her. And uh, he said, "Now, if I if I get you one of these shirts, would you run out in the foyer and and yell, I love this place?'" And <laughs> and he named what the company name was. She said, "Yeah, I would." He said, "Okay." So he went and got her the shirt, and she ran out in their little area and and yelled, "I love working here," or something like that, and just playing around. And, and it was just a little thing. But the point was, is you never realize until you're around it, and you've seen this in different places you've worked and consulted with, you never realized how important some of these little things are to people. 
but they truly are. I mean, people will work their tail end off to get their name on a plaque or to get their their you know get recognition at the next award ceremony. So managers, and not all people now respond to that. Some people want to be behind the scenes, and, and that goes back to adapting your style to different people. You can't just say, well, we're going to do this new recognition program, and it's going to boost performance in everyone, because it won't work on everyone. That's a myth. Well, it's very nice. That story you gave is very nice, too, for two reasons. Number one, he as a manager had obviously created an environment where he was open for communication which I think is you know, a big part of recognition. And the second thing is he gave her something active to do that you know, called more attention to the positive relationship than if he had just kind of handed her the golf shirt. Right. You know, I, I guarantee you she got some kind of reaction <laughs> from her hallway announcement, and it had to have played well for, for both of them. Yep, and it and it actually ended up playing well for the rest of the organization. So yeah, but you know it's the little things. It can be as small as plaques and all those kind of things. It can be coffee mugs with their name on it. Um, people get excited about stuff like that. So recognition really goes back to some sort of public show of appreciation for what people have done. Let me ask you just one more question on recognition before we move on. Is there ever a time where an employee um, you need to be sensitive? Maybe an employee doesn't want to be uh, recognized at a at a lunch or a plaque or something like that. Or in your experience, have you found that deep down, it's pretty much of a constant. People want the recognition. It's not a constant. No, there's no way that you can uh, apply that formulaically to um, people in general. Certainly, there are people who respond differently. So that's what I meant by some people want to be behind the scenes. You tell them, we're going to get you up at the company uh, award ceremony and give you this plaque, and they'll say, ah, just, why don't you just give it to me? You know, I'd rather not. That's exactly what I was asking. So it goes back to knowing your employees, taking the time to understand what, making, what makes them tick, and creating the right recognition technique that will motivate them. Right, and you know, it can be as much as, as recognizing someone, for example, let's say that you had five people that were supposed to get an award, and you know, I mean, it, it doesn't, here's the deal, let's say that you don't announce the awards, awards in advance, obviously, and you're having this event, and you give everyone a plaque. Well, even the shyest person, or the person who that really isn't their bag, you can give, call their name out and they can come up and get their plaque. The key is, as a manager, for you to not expect all of those people to respond the same to those plaques. In other words, some people will go, dang, I can't wait to get back to work and, and generate this feeling again. Again, it's, it's what's going on inside of them. You can't motivate people. You can only trigger what's inside of them. And so if that person thrives on that kind of stuff, then they're going to go back to their office or desk or cubicle or whatever and really try to reproduce that feeling and reproduce that event. And other people, they're not going to care. It's not going to motivate them in the least. See, again, you have to 
um, really be sensitive as a manager and and discover well what is it that really drives that person it may be go back to appreciation it may go back to you you know how you stop by their desk and talk to them the plaque may have nothing to do with that so you know they may get the plaque just like everyone else but ultimately it it comes back to your own personal ongoing relationship with them Okay, so I'm going to sum that up by saying you can't motivate people. You can only trigger what's inside of them. And to do that, you need to be sensitive and discover what drives each person. Exactly. Great. Let's talk now about inspiration. Okay. Inspiration goes back to the leader, ultimately. I mean, you have sometimes peers in an organization that, uh, you know, they could be inspiring to someone else, but this is really the leader's role. And that goes back to what can a leader do that will inspire their people to want to do more, reach higher, achieve more, perform better, you know, come to work and, and engage. What is it that a leader can do? Well, a leader can set big goals. A leader can have, set the, the bar high, the standard high. The leader can inspire people, um, can tie what those people do to a much bigger picture. In other words, people come to work every single day. There's a great book out um, uh Ken Bletcher and some other people wrote it called Gung Ho. And uh, the, the premise behind that book was even in the most mundane jobs or in factory work or whatever, that a leader can inspire their people by tying it to a much bigger picture of what those products and services and widgets and all of that the role they play in a grander part of life. In other words, how they affect people and the lives they save, etc. So the, um, the, the big deal there is for the manager to find ways to inspire their people, to set goals, to, to have a mission for the organization, to proclaim that mission. I mean, I talked here a while back with a, a guy that runs a Kinko's. They were number two in the entire uh, Kinko's system. This was before FedEx bought them out. But they had a big competition, and he and I were talking about how they did this. And he's in a, not a very big market, and yet was number two store in the entire system. And I said, well, how did you do it? What did you um, do to accomplish that? And he said, well, one of the things that I did was I set huge, we set this huge goal, but he said, I pulled my people together in an initial meeting and I told them what we were going to do and, and got their involvement and got them all excited about it. But he said, then we met every single week and I reminded them of the goal, reminded them of how important reminded them of what it was going to be like to go to, they all were going to get to go on this trip to Hawaii or somewhere, I think. Um, it, you know, just kept the, the vision out in front of them. Well, that inspired those people to want to do it. Um, so it, that, that's a little piece of it, but you hear about, um, you know, leaders standing up in a town hall meeting kind of thing and, you know, sitting on the edge of a table and sharing the vision for where they're going to take this company and, and how important it is for the people who work in that organization to buy into that and to support that and how that there's no way that the company can do it without the complete commitment and support of the people. And and then bringing it down to the level of each person of where they work and what they do and how that ties into the success of the organization. So inspiration is really about creating an environment where people are enthusiastic 
about what they're accomplishing in the organization. Now, here's a tough question. Uh, no one wants to consider whether they themselves are inspirational or not, but is it possible that some people, some managers, are simply more inspirational than others? Possibly, yeah. I mean, I would say that's true, but I don't want to confuse inspiration with external display, okay? In other words, you don't have to be a cheerleader to be inspirational. You could be inspirational by your your own actions. I mean, think about this. Have you ever followed a leader or, or seen people follow a leader and you might ask them, what is it that, that makes you want to, um, to, to do what they ask and what is it that makes you want to, to you know, follow their lead, etc.? And that person says something to the effect of, they set such a role model for the rest of us. We always know that they're truly committed and that they're willing to roll up their sleeves and get involved and get engaged in what's going on. And that inspires us to want to do more. So basically what you're saying, even if you're not the most charismatic speaker or you know, you don't have certain natural talents that someone else might have, you can also be inspirational by demonstrating through your own actions. Certainly. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, and in fact, I'm not saying it doesn't have anything to do with charisma, but that is certainly not the prerequisite for being able to inspire people. You just find other ways to do it. Okay, so to sum up on inspiration, I hear, think what you're saying here is you need to keep the vision active. You can't just state the goal once and let it go. You need to affirm the individual's contribution to success and you need to create enthusiasm for the team goal, for the big picture. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And lastly, no matter who you are, you can demonstrate yourself as a role model and in doing so thus inspire the people that you're working with. Exactly. Great. Okay, let's go up to uh, your factor number five, compensation. What exactly can a manager do related to compensation? Sometimes he or she can't give an infinite amount of uh, salary increases to someone. Sometimes they have to maintain pay equity among members of the team. So what do you think, in very concrete terms, managers should or shouldn't do related to motivation and compensation? It depends on what level they are in the organization, obviously, of whether or not they can implement change or whether or not they can affect, um, you know, the pay in in a company. And that's one of the reasons that, um, you know, when I, I talk about this in my seminars, It'll really depend on who's in that audience. If I'm speaking to C-level people, I address this differently than if I'm speaking to frontline managers, for example. But, um, you know, one of the, the things that... Let, let's look at it across the gamut. One of the things that I talk about in general principles is that a company... You know, this is really has little to do with the manager unless they're able to actually bring about the change. But a company, in my opinion, should tie 
compensation to performance in as many ways as possible. In other words, if you want uh, people to really excel in certain areas, then there should be some percentage of the compensation tied to performance. And that doesn't just mean sales. That could mean profit levels, you know, uh, overall productivity of a unit, a business unit, etc. So that's one of the underlying factors. But when you talk about what every manager can do, some of them cannot actually bring about that change. So at best, they can look for what is there and make sure everyone is aware of it. I mean, I have seen um, cases where, and, and maybe you have too, where people are working in the organization and they actually have not been made fully aware of the different factors that can affect their pay and how they could go about improving on those factors. Does that make sense to you? That makes a lot of sense. What you're saying is they don't have that kind of clarity and visibility about the factors that could increase their own salary or their own bonus or potentially their own benefits. Correct. And it can be in the same position or it also could be here's what you have to do, John or Mary, to get to the next level. In other words, you know, this is clearly what it takes to move up in the organization and thus receive a higher level of pay as well. So it could be that compensation is not affected on the day-to-day -day basis, but they could have something that they could reach for where they would be, you know, achieving a promotion of some sort and, and ultimately making more money. So, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things a manager can do um, that are within their reach and control. One of them is that clarity and communication, making sure that people know, A, all of the different factors and fundamental pieces of the puzzle that affect their pay, and B, what the employee can do to enhance that, you know, if it's if there's something tied to this particular uh, performance matrix, then how does the employee affect that? And then, it, it, let's be honest here, Stephanie. I mean, I do these seminars all over and speak at these meetings, and there are a ton, I mean, literally a, a majority, a sweeping majority of companies who do not tie performance to compensation. So, um, you know, I realize that when we say this stuff, we're, we're really talking about a lot of room for improvement in organizations worldwide to do this. But as a manager who has little control over bringing about policy change or pay change or any of that, the, the best thing you can do is make sure you find out what is in place, what are your tools basically in your arsenal, taking that to your people, telling them very clearly what they can do to bring about that uh, you know, rise in pay in their life and also showing them ways that they can increase their pay over time by, you know, climbing the career ladder. Excellent. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. You know, um, obviously everybody's very sensitive about money, talking about their salary, because in many cases people associate their salary with their own self-image. But I don't... I agree with you that very often in performance reviews and discussions, there's no direct discussion about money, and it's a huge issue, and I think there's a, a tremendous reticence to really put it on the table. So you're saying that 
managers have to break through that reticence and talk about a topic it might not be that easy to talk about. Yeah, if I were a manager, you know, and I think it goes back to the quality of your questions in any process. The the ability to get good information is the ability to write good questions. Uh, just like this interview today, you've done an exceptional job of getting a lot of information that people pay thousands of dollars to learn. Uh, you've gotten it by asking the right questions. So the, the key is to be able to develop a repertoire, a toolbox of great questions to ask your people uh, that could get you to the heart of the matter and and possibly part of that interview process could be talking about or not interview but you know performance review process once you get into the you know talking about the, what they're doing on the job and their functions etc is asking them you know some questions about you know where do you see yourself going you've been here for X number of months or years now uh, where do you see yourself going in the organization what are some of the things you think you're truly exceptional at. Um, what do you love most about your work? Have you seen other things in the organization you think you would be effective at? Um, and you know, do you see yourself moving up? And and once you talk about that, why do you see yourself moving up? What do you think it would do for you if you moved up in the organization? Well, see, one person might answer that question. Well, if I moved up in the organization, I would get more responsibility. And what I'm really looking for is a challenge. I'm looking for something to really push me. And, and I love doing new things and exciting things. And moving up would give me a chance to kind of get out of my comfort zone and try some new things. If they don't talk about money, there's a very good chance, and you would want to continue to dig, you know, obviously. But if they don't talk about money, there's a very good chance that that's not their number one motivational factor, right? Absolutely. So, uh, but another person might say, well, to be honest with you, um, I'd like to make more money. I, I mean, you know, I, I'm doing okay now, and making the money I make now is fine, but my family, you know, my kids are going to be going to college in four years now, or eight years now, or three years, or whatever, and I know we're going to have added expenses there, and frankly, I'd like to be able to make some more money. Well, there's a, you now have a carrot as a manager that you can talk about with them. So in your conversations you can 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 bring those back up in a skilled way where you're talking about you know number 1 if there's truly a chance for them to advance you need to lay out for them the path of what it takes to get there. Now you and I know Stephanie a lot of manu managers fail as managers because they're afraid of people passing them up or moving on without them. And to me, that's it's very small thinking because truly a manager could look at their life in over the scope of a career and say, you know, I helped develop that leader in our company. I helped develop that leader in our company. I helped, you know, the guy that's now my peer. I'm the one that helped bring them up and, and train them and teach them and could and should take a lot of pride in that. And and not look at it as well. They they caught up with me or passed me up or or whatever. Um, so a lot of managers fail to do the stuff we're talking about here. Really digging in and helping people excel and perform at higher levels because there is a fear inside of them of losing control or being left behind. Well, 
ultimately, that that's a decision they need to make in looking at whether they want to be a good manager or an exceptional manager. That's exactly right. And, you know, uh, uh, again, if you go back to uh, a, a mindset of that my role is to produce results through other people, that's how my success is determined, then the more exceptional people you could develop and bring up in the organization really is a credit to your own skill and uh, performance as a manager. So you'd want to do that. I mean, you'd want to do as much of that as possible. But a lot of people don't get past their own uh, feelings of inadequacy or fear. Okay, so listen, I'm going to sum up, JP, on compensation and then just ask you a few closing questions. You bet. In terms of compensation, you need to communicate options and opportunities on their current role. You need to lay out a path for growth and advancement if that's what they're looking for. And you need to ask questions to find the right carrot for each person. Does that about sum it up? Yeah, it certainly does. And then obviously not forgetting to go back and use that carrot on a regular basis. Not like being facetious and dangling it in front of them or making snide or passing comments, but re- continually being reminded of you know, you know, Sue, you said that you wanted to, at the next performance review or when you're talking about a particular project launch, saying, you know, Sue, you had said that you wanted to move up in the organization, and, and part of that was I'm sure you'd like the excitement of response, more responsibility and new challenges and roles, but ultimately you and I talked about, you know, last May that you would like to make more money around here and that you would like to uh, you know, be able to afford a better um, lifestyle for your children, or that you would like to be able to send your child to college, and that that would help you do that. Here's what I've been thinking: We've got this project coming up, and I'm looking for the right person to lead this project. This would really be sort of a test, Sue, for you to kind of step into this role without jumping off the cliff and saying, "Okay, I'm getting promoted." It would give you a chance to step into this role and to see you know how you perform I'll be there with you 100% of the way mentoring you you know watching you um, being a guide to you answering any questions you might have coaching you through the process but really this goes back Sue to me trying to groom you and position you so that you can get that promotion and advance in the company so I really want you to not take this lightly. This project that I'm putting you in charge of, not only is it ultimately of supreme importance to our company, but really it's important to your career advancement and ultimately reaching that level of of pay and compensation that you seek. So I just want you to really take this seriously. See, that'd be a great way to coach them through the launch process of that project. Well, JP, I appreciate you actually, you know, going through some of the details of that conversation because I think that's what managers really lack. It's one thing to say, you know, talk to your people, but the way you just demonstrated how you can dig a little deeper in the conversation I think is very helpful. Um, Would you say that what you're trying to do there is to demonstrate your mutual commitment to their goal with support but also with standards? Yep. Okay. A couple of... Last question, JP. You know, say you're managing a team of people. You know, some people are naturally, it seems to me, better team players than others. 
If you think that's true, what does a manager do to deal with those who aren't natural team players? Well, that goes back to two factors. One is that you can't manage all people with the same standard or the same approach. It's impossible. That's the biggest myth in management probably is that you should treat people equally and fairly. That's a crock. You can't do that. Otherwise, it's you know it's like trying to apply the same combination to every safe. You're not going to unlock all the safes with the same combination. So you're not going to unlock the performance of all your people with the same pieces, uh, the same recipe or the same formula. So really, you have to adapt and look at each of those people, and you you could find someone that. Uh, I mean, they may be a rogue. I remember a story of a, a company, uh, and I think this is probably, you know, started somewhere and turned into um, folklore or whatever, but it's a great example that there's this, you know, this employee that walks down the hall every day, and he walks by this guy's office, and every time he walks by the guy's office, he looks in, in there, and the guy's sitting with his feet up on the desk, staring out the window. And, you know, every day he walks by this guy's office and looks in, and there he is, sitting there with his feet up, staring out the window. And it really starts to eat at him and bother him. Here he is going to his desk, working his butt off, doing all this stuff, pushing paper, doing numbers, crunching, you know, on and on and on, working, working, working. And here's this guy, day in, day out, he walks by his office, and he's staring out the window. And finally, he goes to his manager, and he says, I don't get it. I I work hard around here. And every time I go by this guy's office, he's staring out the window. He's got his feet propped up. What's the deal? I feel like it's not fair. And his manager says, you're right, it probably doesn't look like it's fair. But last year alone, he came up with over $10 million in savings and new performance systems that we've implemented. And guess what? He came up with them sitting there staring out the window. And so it's a great example. And I'm not saying that you know people shouldn't all be contributing and, and all of that. But it's a great example that different people play different roles in the organization. And so it's important to, if you have someone that's sort of a, a rogue, and, um, and I want to I draw a real distinction between people who are disruptive and people who are um, just different, wired differently. Okay, there are, those are two different things. If you have someone who's disruptive and who is damaging and negative to the organization, you're better off without them. I mean, if you watched my video, you saw me talking about the 27 percenters. And the 27 percenters are people who are negative by nature. They're people who would rather fight against something than fight for it. They're people who drain the energy out of the room. When you have a, a staff meeting and you're talking about how can we be better, how can we be a better company, how can we improve performance, how can we improve service, how can we reduce waste, how can we increase profits, they're the one that always raises all the negative questions and drains the energy from the room. Uh, they're the one that's always trying to sh you know, take shots at you. So I'm not talking about these 27 percenters, these negative energy suckers. Those people need to be removed. But if you have someone in your organization that they're, they're not a team player 
but they do something exceptionally well like maybe um, they're a loner and when they get alone in their office they they you know work out process maps or systems that make the entire organization run more efficiently and effectively well congratulate yourself for having been so smart to hire them <laughs> because you're a winner you know you got something on your hands that you can use it's just important to then coach the rest of the team to understand that each person plays a role so going back to sort of that modeling and role playing that I was I went into a few minutes ago I would if I were having staff meetings I would say something to the effect of, you know, each person in this company plays a different role. Some of you collaborate on projects and work together well, and you accomplish a lot that way. And I realize some of you perform best as sort of loners and sort of going into your zone and doing your own thing. I just want you to know that as a manager and a leader of this group that I value both. And so my role as a manager, and this is, you know, I tell people to go back from my conferences and, and say this kind of stuff. My role as a leader is not to make each of you a robot to perform equally or the same or to follow all of the, obviously we have policies, but in other words, to follow the same model or map. My role is to find out what each of you are truly exceptional at and to help you do more of that. And if that means that you need to work on certain projects independently and, and be focused like a laser beam on certain issues, I'll do that. If that means that you should be put in charge of a team of three people to work on a specific project, I'll do that. I just want each of you to understand that collectively you're all part of a bigger picture but individually you make a contribution in your own way and I respect that and value that that sounds um, like something a lot of employees might really be motivated to hear um, do you think JP that it takes a certain amount of courage for a manager to put himself or herself in that position of openness and flexibility well it does and that's what I meant Is earlier when I said a lot of people are threatened by that they're, see, here's my deal. As an entrepreneur building companies, I always tried to surround myself with people who were smarter than I was. You, know, you and I talked about that. You, know, you went to some pretty amazing schools and stuff, and my background is different than that. I got out of high school, traveled for a short period of time, and then started my first company. And, you know, I, I, there's, there's different approaches to it. You know, different people do different things. But great managers or leaders are those who surround themselves with people who are smarter than they are. They're just the conductor, the, the one who orchestrates it all. You don't have to know how to play all the instruments to make great music. And, and that goes back to being a great leader or manager. You just need to know how to bring out the best in your people. And that means you've got to dig and find out what are they truly exceptional at, what do they respond to, how can you motivate them, how can you get them engaged and fully involved. And it's not an easy task, or everyone would be great managers, obviously. So it does take some additional work. But part of it is getting yourself out of the way, getting your own ego out of the way. I mean, again, I have never had a, a, a problem with saying, you know, such and such is better than me at this 
You know, I, I would love to have a lot of people that, that are better than me at different things and just have the ability to orchestrate that. But a lot about finding strength in yourself to find the best strength in your team. Yep, it sure is. Uh, closing question. You know, a lot of managers have people on their teams that might have terrific potential or might be doing a great job, but maybe they need to build skills in certain areas. How does a manager determine the best way to develop his or her staff? And that, you know, includes the practical matters of finding the right budget. And I'd like you to address this issue of individuality. Maybe it isn't right to send the whole team to the same training program. On the other hand, people look at that as a fantastic team-building exercise. So what is what are the best ways of developing your staff in order to promote yourself? Well, it goes back to, again, different people come, start at different levels. They come at this at different levels. So you have people on your staff who are, you might have someone who's an, an A on the skill level and a B on the um, personal uh, interactive attributes or skills. Maybe they know really how to do their job well, but they don't know how to be a great employee or a great team player, or they don't know how to communicate real effectively. They know how to run the machines, but they don't know how to fully engage and interact with others. So you have to coach them through that process. You have another person who's really excited and fun, and everybody loves them and wants them on their team and wants to be around them, but they don't have the skills. You know, they don't know how to run the equipment or they don't know how to fill out the paperwork or get the job done. They need to be trained on those skills. So being a great manager is recognizing where each person stands. The other thing is to look at your people individually and not try to... um, address their developmental issues equally. One of the the things that we did with our People Builders program is we talk about what I call the human development equation, and that is that you have two pieces, the intellect and the emotion. And that means that different people start at different levels in each of those, but you have to bring both up to a high level. Intellect meaning, excuse me, the actual skill sets that are necessary. Emotion meaning the attitude, the mindset, the, um, the internal motivation, the inspiration all those factors. Both of those have to come up, but different people start at different levels. So as a manager, you've got to be sensitive to the fact that some people know their stuff and other people don't. And so, yeah, you've got to train, and I mean, budgets and all that kind of stuff is a whole other conversation, but you've got to train people to do their job or else you can't expect them to do their job. You know, I, and also you've got to provide them with the tools to do it. Have you ever seen a situation where, you know, people are expected to do something, but yet they've really not been given the step-by-step process or maybe they've not been given really the tools to accomplish it? Absolutely, and then everyone's going to one person in the office who knows how to do it somehow, right? Right. So as a manager, you have to be sensitive to that, and you have to, um, you know, work around that. So, yeah, I I think that, that you know, training and development uh, is probably one of the most important, and I'm not just talking about skills, job skills, but human development and professional training are one of the most important things that a company, a manager, can invest in 
you know, I look at across the landscape of a company, and I often say that your competition can duplicate your advertising campaign. Your competition can duplicate your technology. Your competition can get a better location than you. They can get better equipment than you. They can outmaneuver you and outspend you in the marketplace. But the one thing they cannot duplicate is your human capital. It's your people that are your edge. They're the ones that make the difference. And so if you're going to truly build an organization that is exceptional, that's going to excel, and is going to have an edge in the marketplace, the absolute best place you can invest your dollars and your time and your energy is in your people in bringing out their best, in helping them achieve, in training them, in coaching them. And all of those factors really come back to the frontline manager, the person who's on a day-to-day basis walking the floor, you know, meeting people, connecting, pressing the flesh, finding out what they're doing well, finding out where they need to improve, finding out where they're happy, finding out where they're unhappy. That's what the manager's role is, is in developing those people. And when you develop those people, I say build your people and let your people build your business. That's more than just a catchphrase. If you develop and grow and, and build your people, your organization will be a natural growth process that comes from that. You don't build companies, you build people, and people build companies. Unless you're going to be a loner, and we're not talking about that. We're talking about you know anywhere from a you know few employees to a multinational company. If you're going to build that kind of an operation, you've got to invest an awful lot in people. Well, thanks again, JP. I'd just like to wrap up all the points we covered in the last hour. We covered a lot, but overall. What we've learned from JP is that what managers need to do to advance themselves to the next level is, number one, assume the role in an active way. Number two, acquire knowledge. Number three, do something with that knowledge. Number four, write a plan so they know where they're going and they know what they're trying to do. Number five, become very expert at motivating. That means addressing satisfaction, appreciation, recognition, inspiration, and compensation. And number six, train your people to succeed in their roles, and you will succeed. You've been listening to the J.P. Maroney Audio Vault.